Father Robert Spitzer is a Jesuit priest, former president of Gonzaga University, who had written a number of books. And uh, one of them was called Light, The Light Shines On in the Darkness. It dealt with suffering. Now, when we suffer, we try to make sense of it. And one of the ways that we may try to make sense of it is to figure out what kind of God we have. And unfortunately, many times we come up with a God that is just flat out wrong. And he lists a number of them. Maybe you might be familiar with some of them. First off, there is the angry God, the God that is present in the Old Testament, but Jesus never mentions it in the Gospels. Nevertheless, the idea is implied by these four, by four New Testament expressions or actions of Jesus. All right. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God, namely the negative judgment we justly deserve for our deeds. And Gehenna, where wailing and grinding of teeth does not indicate that God is cavalry condemning people to hell, but he's warning us not to pursue the path of self-absorption. Then we also have Jesus' harsh words towards the Pharisees. That was a well-known prophetic method. John the Baptist did as well as the Old Testament prophets to engage in debate and try to get the person to change their mind. Also to warn them about spiritual peril if they continue in their self-righteousness. Then there is the payback God, kind of like the old, uh, the, the angry God. You know, justifications, you know, we did this, so God is mad, boom, there we go. We get it, we deserve it. All I can say is, open up to the gospel parable about the father of the prodigal son to tell you what Jesus thinks about that. Then there is the domineering God, the one who wants to show his superiority, make his authority felt. It is almost seems as if the uh, our gospel today James and John, as well as the others, seem to have this idea that that's the kind of rulers they need to be because they see human rulers doing it and they think that somehow in some way that's what God does. Again, the Christian mystical tradition, as expressed by St. John of the Cross, I am yours and for you and I'm delighted to be what I am so as to be yours and give myself to you. In other words, we have a God who tells us domination is not what I'm after, but rather service. Then there's the terrifying God. We think of that, uh, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards were just a little spider, you know, just being held by God by a mere thread before being dropped into hell. The New Testament God is not that kind of God, a God who has immense love for us, unconditional love for us. Indeed, everything that Jesus preaches seems to go against these ideas by showing God's intense and unconditional love for us and the desire for our salvation. Then there's the Stoic God. This one does not have any biblical roots at all, but rather comes right out of the Mediterranean world. It seems to make a lot of sense, though, in our contemporary culture, doesn't it? After all, what do we like in our Western world? We like rationality. We like strength. We like self-discipline. We like courage and fortitude. Now, the problem is with that is that they are not subordinate to agape, in other words, to the care, compassion, empathy, humility, and self-sacrifice for the good of others, 
if it is just that, those stoic values, they can lead to every kind of indignity, callous marginalization, and persecution. We'll be helpful, but we won't have compassion. We'll be tough-minded, but we won't be gentle-hearted. It's not our God. And then finally, there's the one that I think a lot of us sometimes, especially if you struggle with addictions, seem to think your God is, and that's the disgusted God. All right? The one who's saying, come on, work harder, faster, better. You're not shaping up. I've had enough. Okay? God has one thing about to say about that. His only concern is leading us and others to eternal salvation. There is no trace of disrespect, disdain, or disgust, but only a perfect parent's undying love. And so how do we tackle suffering? we got to have an answer, right? We have, we, we're looking for answers for just about everything. You know, we want to be able to have the answer, even when the answer may not seem to fit, or we don't, we're not even convinced of it ourselves. But the problem is that suffering is one of life's great mysteries. It comes in many forms. It could come naturally through the laws of nature. Tornadoes, blizzards, hurricanes, earthquakes, whatever else. Nobody's to blame. It's the laws of nature. When these things happen in our atmosphere, sometimes bad things can happen. But then there is also the suffering that's caused from moral evils. Those are acts committed by human beings. Now these here can cause grief, destroy life. There's a list on that that's endless. In this case, it might be a little bit easier to assign blame the bottom line is sometimes that even that isn't as clear-cut as we'd like it to be. So surrounded by the effects that we see in suffering, even when no explanation is possible, we still want to try to have some kind of understanding. And more important, to understand who God is in the midst of all of this. Now, it probably doesn't help that our first reading from Isaiah says he's pleased to crush us in our infirmity. And so, as the letter to the Hebrews says in the second reading, Christ has been tested in every way, so let's confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. In other words, he's not telling us to try to figure out who God is in these moments. And he's not asking us to try to come up with answers for suffering, but maybe to realize that even in moments of trial, even in moments when evil seems to triumph, good can and oftentimes does emerge. The suffering servant doesn't suffer in vain, but justifies many. His suffering has value. And our suffering can have value too. As Paul's letter to the Colossians said very clearly in uh, chapter 1, verse 24, we can join our sufferings with Christ for the salvation of the world. And so this theme of finding value in suffering is, is further developed in the gospel. Now, again, maybe these disciples needed to have an understanding about what it means to be a leader, as Christ wants leaders. Wants them to be uh, people not interested in glory, but rather self-service and self-sacrificing in a very radical way. That's discipleship. That's the hallmark of discipleship. So, therefore, in Christ, if we can begin to use suffering for a greater purpose, perhaps we can learn from it and join 
with Christ for the justification of others. No moment of human suffering will ever go unnoticed by God. He is not the stoic God. He's not the disgusted God. He's not the domineering God or any of those ones. We need to keep something in mind when we read about things like that. God does not have emotions in the sense that he has immediate, effective responses to outside stimuli, if you will. But rather, when the Bible describes God as having emotions like anger or regret or even pleasure, we understand that these are metaphors that describe how human beings relate to God, not how God relates to us. The Bible's descriptions of God's emotions also represent how ancient people conceived God in the light of their cultural context. Many times in ancient cultures, uh, gods were often proclaimed, uh, compared to human kings. And the best kings were those who were strong and swiftly punished. So you can get some idea of where they're coming from. But just as the Bible uses ancient descriptions, popular descriptions of the world, and they should not be equated with modern scientific descriptions of it, so is the same here when we talk about God and his quote-unquote emotions. Our God is love, not just loving, he is love. And he is one who desires us to have hope even in suffering, even when it doesn't make sense, because he will triumph over suffering with the resurrection. Our hope, too, then, is that we could share in that victory.